All right. So uh, I'd like to start today in a moment by uh, praying for all the fathers in the room. Uh, I understand a, a couple things. There's a lot of dynamics at play. There's, there's men in here who um, don't have kids. We have people who have lost children. We have people who don't have good relationships with their, their children, sons and daughters in the room who don't have good relationships with their fathers. I mean, just the dynamic is there, and I know there's that diversity of walk in life. Nevertheless, I do want to take some time to pray uh, for our dads, our fathers, our grandfathers, for those of you who, um, many of you are, have, have, been brought into situations where you may not be the biological father, but for all intents and purposes, you're, you're fathering. And so um, if all the men who are fathers, grandfathers in any way, shape, or form, can you just stand and I could, can pray for you? There is a... Um, a clear attack on you. So let me pray. Father, we give you thanks for the children you've brought um, into our lives. We understand that fathering is a sacred and holy task that it is a great responsibility that you've put upon us. And so we want to bear the weight of that responsibility well. We want to father well. We understand that one of the first images of a heavenly father that's developed in kids is given by earthly fathers and earthly representations. And so we again approach communicating that image with fear and trembling. We approach fathering as a sacred and holy task. We pray that we would be able to protect our children physically and spiritually. And I pray for all of us, all the men in this room, that we would be able to raise our children to be strong enough so that they may stand firmly on your foundation when we are not able to protect them. For we know the world is evil and there will be days and times where we won't be able to hold them or protect them. So help us to raise strong kids on firm foundations that could stand in this world. I pray that all of our children would know that whatever love we express, it is but a glimpse of the love that you have for them. And most importantly, the prayer, the most important prayer that we always pray is that our kids would love and serve you all the days of their life. And that we would be faithful to the end of our lives so that they may have a clear example of faithfulness until the end. So we trust you with our kids. We ask you that you would move in their lives and they would know and serve you to the very end. Bless these men in this room, Lord, and strengthen them, strengthen them, power them, empower them, and encourage them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
All right. Um, it was already going to be a hard turn from that, but it's going to be an even harder turn because of what we're talking about. Uh, so we're going through uh, the book of Matthew, which is a biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And one of the things I love about going through the Bible verse by verse is that you will um, inevitably encounter verses that you would never decide to preach on if you, were going verse, if you weren't going by verse by verse. And today's one of those days. We've had a couple of them already, but today is for sure one of them. You would never read this passage and go, that sounds like a great Sunday morning sermon. It just, just wouldn't happen. Now, one of the dangers with today's passage is people will focus or tend to focus on this one super controversial part. And I know why. It's reasonable. It's not, it's not like illogical. It's very rational to, to focus on this one particular section. But in doing so, in hyper-focusing on that, we can miss some of the other things that I think maybe are probably more important and relevant to us. So I'll get straight to the super tense controversial part and then we'll kind of back up from there. But here's the part that everyone concentrates on. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. A quick definition of this word blasphemy, because it's a word that we don't often use. Blasphemy is to speak a slanderous word against God or to speak a word that is so disrespectful it crosses into the line of this category of blasphemy. Something slanderous, vile, some accusation, something so disrespectful, a disrespectful of a word pointed toward God, towards God. So Jesus is essentially saying uh, blasphemies against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but then... The dangerous part is whoever speaks these types of blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Now the reason why that's so heavy is it strikes at our very conception of God, right? Like we, go, we wanna say, wait, wait, I thought I was always taught that as long as you come to Jesus, no matter what you've done in your past, you'll be forgiven. Like there's no line that you can cross where Jesus says, no way, there's no room for forgiveness. And so this has to do with how like, we imagine and picture God to be. So it can be very disturbing. Now online, you can see a wide spectrum of how people respond to this. On one end of the spectrum, there are people who are absolutely terrified that they've committed this sin. And I know pastorally, that's some of you, you've wrestled with that. This is something that's quite common. There's this idea that somehow we've, we've crossed the line and the fear of that can be overwhelming and it overtakes us. And we wrestle with, have, like, I, have I gone too far? Will God cut me off? Then on the opposite end of the spectrum, there are people online who do something called the blasphemy challenge, which is um, a challenge that was given that countless people have taken up where you record yourself on video blaspheming the Holy Spirit and then upload it to YouTube for the world to see. And it's for those who either A, hate Christianity so much or you're so certain that Christianity is false, you're gonna do the one thing the scripture says crosses the line and then you do it and record it and say, look world, I don't care. So in between those two spectrums, there's a lot of, two sides of the spectrum, there's a lot of different kind of 
emotional responses, but on the gut level, those are the two types of things we're seeing. What I want to do is sort of, sort of take a step back, look at this verse in its entire context, and try to do our best to see what's going on, and then demonstrate how maybe hyper-focusing on this takes our eyes off some important other things that are in the passage. So let's back up a few verses from that section. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then a demon oppressed man was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said can this be the son of David but when the Pharisees heard it they said it's only by Beelzebul the prince of demons that this man cast out demons okay so one kind of warning right off the bat and we've said this a number of times and we'll continue to say it because it's important for us to understand Whenever we encounter anything in the scriptures dealing with the supernatural angels and demons, we typically, not maybe all of us, but the majority of us, and maybe some who don't think this is the case, fail to understand how true this is, but we have been so saturated in a materialist culture that we approach things of the supernatural like, ah, come on, do you really believe that? When I say the word materialism, I don't mean materialism as in we're greedy. I'm talking about materialism in the sense that there is a belief that the only thing exists is the physical world. The only thing that exists is that which can be experienced by your five senses. The physical world, that which you can touch and see, that's what I can feel, that's ultimate reality and there's nothing beyond that. So the materialist position is the only thing that exists is the physical world. So you've been brought up in a culture. We're saturated in that. So we, by default, even when we we're trying not to, sort of get caught up in thinking through a materialist lens, and we have to fight against that. Because a modern person may approach us and say, oh, well, you know, you don't really believe in demons, do you? But you need to understand that most people throughout human history and most people who are walking on earth alive today would say, you don't really believe the only things that exist are that which you physically observe, right? You think your five senses perceive the sum total of reality? Oh, what an arrogant position to hold. And so we, by default, are saturated in this context. So we just have to be aware of it. Because the Bible speaks clearly. It says there's a man who's both physically and spiritually sick. Jesus heals him. He casts out this demon. And the response of the people is, can this be the son of David? Is this him? Now, this response... Can this be the son of David? Son of David is a technical term. Second Samuel chapter seven. It's this idea that God promised King David hundreds of years ago that he would have a son one day that would have an everlasting kingdom. And out of this idea of a king who would be an everlasting king developed the idea of a Messiah figure. And the Messiah figure would come and deliver God's people and initiate the beginning phase, phase of what's called the age to come. So in Jewish thought, there's two ages. There's the present evil age, the Alam Hazeh, and then there's the age to come, which is the Alam Haba. The present evil age, there's demons, suffering, violence, war, famine, all these bad things. But in the age to come, the Alam Haba, God would defeat evil. He would vindicate his people. There would be no more violence, no more war. And one of the signs of that would be the defeat of the demonic powers. And so Jesus is doing miracles and driving out the demonic powers and the people's response is, could this be? Could this be the son of David? Is this him? 
Now, how do the Pharisees respond? They say, no way. He's just casting out demons by the, po- demons by the power of Beelzebub. Sometimes pronounced Beelzebub. This is a, an alternate name for Satan, the prince of demons. So they're saying, no, no, this guy isn't doing anything special. He's actually just casting out demons and performing these miracles by the power of Satan. Heavy, you gotta feel it like, you gotta stop. They're giving glory for the work that Jesus is doing. They're attributing that not to the work of the spirit, to the work of Satan. Now there was all kinds of exorcists in Jesus' day and usually they had like, medicines and and herbs and and incantations and scrolls and special words that would help them try to drive out evil spirits. That's not uncommon in this day. What is unique is that Jesus doesn't use those things. He simply cast out demons by his power and authority and his word. So Jesus is in a fundamentally different category than these other exorcists. And the Pharisees would have been observing this. But nevertheless, they're like, nah, ain't him. One of the other things you need to know is that in accusing him of doing this by the power of Satan, they are essentially accusing him of doing these miracles by black magic sorcery, which is a capital offense at this time. So they are accusing Jesus of working by the power of Satan and possibly accusing him of something that would incur the death penalty. So this is like no joke what's going on with these guys. Goes on, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus points out their faulty logic. Basically says, your, your thinking is, is, it's not even consistent. If I'm casting out demons by the powers of demons, that is a house divided against itself. And how can a house divided against itself stands? stand? Now the important part here though is this last section. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now if you've been paying very close attention to how Matthew phrases things. You will have noticed that Matthew rarely says the kingdom of God. He instead uses an alternate term. He doesn't say kingdom of God, he says kingdom of heaven. Now there's three other gospel accounts, three other biographies of the life of Jesus, and they all pretty much say kingdom of God. Now what's going on? Jewish sensibilities at this time would wanna show the utmost respect for the name of God. So they would uh, avoid using the name of God and things associated with the name of God. So one of the things that would occur is rather than say the kingdom of God, you would use a replacement word like heaven, the kingdom of heaven, out of a sign of utmost respect. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, so he writes with that same type of reverence and respect. But every so often, he uses kingdom of God. Only three times. And it's almost an ancient way of highlighting because you're not gonna highlight ancient papyri manuscripts, man. You gotta make those things 
laughs. I'm not going to pull out a highlighter that you bought from the store. So you do liter- literary th- literarily things. And so this is a way for him to highlight the spirit of God is doing things and you know that the kingdom of God is here. And by the way, that actually meets the definitions that the Pharisees were expecting for the Messiah. If he is the Messiah and he's going to bring about the age to come and he's going to deliver us from evil, he better sure deal with the supernatural forces that are opposed to God. So Jesus is saying, I am meeting your very definition of what Messiah should be. The Spirit of God is doing these things and the kingdom of God is here among you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Okay. It's a weird image, but it's actually a powerful image. So let's walk through this. Jesus says, picture the strong man's house. This is like the bad guy, the tyrant. And the tyrant has these goods and he's holding them in his possession. How can anyone break in and take those goods? How can anyone plunder those things as long as the strong man, the tyrant, is in the house and in control? He says, you first have to bind the strong man so then you can harpazo, that's the Greek word for plunder here, take or seize those goods. And harpazo means to to snatch or to seize or to quickly grab. So at first the image is kind of weird, but it's actually a beautiful image. It's the image of a rescue mission. The tyrant has taken a hold of people. He's captured individuals. And someone goes on a rescue mission to save those who are captured. And Jesus says, how can anyone save those who are captured when they are in the tyrant's house? First, you must bind the strong men. You must tie up the tyrant. And when you bind the strong men, then you can plunder harpazo, those in captivity. So Christ is saying he has come to tie up the tyrant, to bind the strong man, and deliver us, rescue his people. It's a beautiful image. And then right after that beautiful image, there's this quick warning, though. Whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And it's this way of saying there is, there exists no neutrality in regards to Jesus. You're either for him or against him. Now, for those of you who are, are here, you're, you're exploring Christianity, you're looking into the teachings of Jesus, that's good. I'm not saying that's bad. That's a good thing. Continue down that. But what Jesus is saying, in the big picture of things, you cannot maintain neutrality to Jesus forever. Like, the question of who Jesus is, is the question for humanity. And I say that first as a Christian as a pa- and a pastor, but even if I wasn't a Christian or a pastor, historically speaking, the question for human beings to ask is who was this Jesus? And so you can't just maintain this position of neutrality towards Jesus forever. You gotta make a decision at some point. Okay, now the part that everyone is focused on, and reasonably so. Therefore, this is important, that big therefore, because everything that has just occurred before is what's in reference. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age 
or in the age to come. The present evil age or in the Alam Haba, or in the age to come. If you speak this blasphemous word against the spirit. Now, there is no consensus on what this sin is. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the four kind of major different interpretations of what this is. Um, I'm going to tell you what I think. We're going to look at the four briefly, but just know that throughout church history and even in modern interpretation, there is not a clear consensus on exactly what this is. It is so problematic that there are commentaries that I've read that basically say you should never preach on this because no good will ever come out of it. (laughs) But we want to counter that and say it's in the Bible, which means it's the word of God, which means it's there for a reason and a purpose. So let's sort of look at this and see what God might be having for us. Okay, four different understandings on exactly what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. One major interpretation says it is blaspheming the Spirit in the earthly ministry of Jesus. So it is a sin that took place when Jesus was physically on earth in his earthly ministry before the crucifixion and resurrection. So when you are before the incarnate God, the God-man, when you are seeing the Son of God in the flesh and you are seeing him do the miraculous and perform healings and casting out demons and teach with authority like no one else, to see that and to ultimately reject that is walking away from the author of life himself. But it would be something that could only be done during the earthly ministry of Jesus. Which for some of you, it's already like, don't even show me the other views. I like that one. I can't even do it, man, because I blow it all the time, you know? Okay. That's one major view. The second view says it's the consistent, ongoing denial of Jesus. So it is living your life in active rebellion against Jesus and never repenting or accepting who he is. Now, the way um, one church theologian, early church theologian by the, Ath- by the name of Athanasius, who's a brilliant guy, um, he articulated it like this because people go, well, wait a second, it's not the denial of Jesus, it's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And what he says is Jesus said, sins against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but not against the Spirit. And he articulated something along the lines of this, that um, when you sin against the the humanity of Jesus in the incarnation, that is one thing. But to sin against the Spirit, you have to understand that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is sent by the Son. The Spirit is the Spirit of the Son sent by the Son and the Father. So that to sin against the Spirit is to deny the divine nature or the triune nature of Jesus. In other words, The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the ongoing rejection of the divinity of Jesus, to say he is not God. So it's simply, succinctly said is to consistently deny Jesus is the son of God. Third major view. It's the hardening of the heart to a point of no return. In this view, it is said that People can sin so much and they keep rebelling and rebelling and they harden their heart and harden their heart that their heart reaches a point where it can't be hardened anymore. It actually turns to stone. So it's not as if 
that Jesus is saying, if you repented, I wouldn't forgive you, but rather, once you reach a certain point, your heart is so hard against God that you will never indeed repent, therefore you won't receive forgiveness. And you could kind of see that because in the passage, remember where we've been if you've been working with us for the last several weeks. Jesus is doing miracle after miracle, casting out demons, people are being changed, and Jesus is in these places and they're not repenting. And so Jesus says what? Look, if Sodom had saw what you guys have seen, they would have all repented. But you're worse than them because you are seeing God work and you're still in denial. These guys over here would have repented long ago. And so it's this idea of a hardening of heart so much that even if God himself shows up and does a miracle in front of you, you're like, no way. And it's this idea that if you reach that point, what what more can be done? Like what more can be done if God himself shows up and does miracles for you and you still refuse to believe? Okay. Option number four. It's assigning the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan, or giving glory or attributing the works that the Holy Spirit has done to the devil. Now you say, well, where do you get that? And that's actually directly in the context. What did the Pharisees do? The Pharisees saw the miracles, they saw the exorcisms, and they said, this isn't being done by the Holy Spirit, this isn't being done by God, this is done by Beelzebub. So they are crediting the devil for the work of God. Now, within these four major views, there's like variations and sub-variations and different ways to articulate it, but in general, this is kind of the major stream of thought. And you can see that some of them kind of overlap, like it's not like you have to choose two or three. Like they could, there's kind of ways that they can kind of overlap and work together. Now, I'll tell you what I think is going on, and I'm not the only one to, by, by any means, to say this. Um, but I, I th- I, to the best of my ability, I think it's something along the lines of option four, three, and two, kind of combining to form something. The dominant view is, for me is option number four, but it needs some clarification and what we'll call amendment. So let me, let me explain what I mean. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, to the best of my ability, in my understanding, is when someone credits Satan for the work of God. Now here's the important amendment. It is when a person is so rebelling against God, hates God and his truth so much, that they actually know what they just observed was the very hand of the good God, but rather than acknowledge what they actually know to be true, they still attribute that to Satan with, Second Amendment, with the intention that others who were on their journey to Christ fall away. So it is not merely making a mistake where a miracle happens and you don't think it was God who did it. It was the Pharisees knowing that God had done something and they're so stubborn and in rebellion to God, they would rather give credit to Satan than acknowledge what they actually know to be true. Here's some of the reasoning behind that. In the Old Testament, two of the major job functions of the Spirit of God is to reveal truth and enable one to apprehend or comprehend the truth. 
So the Spirit of God is the person who reveals truth and then gets the individual to receive it. So Jesus is doing works of the Spirit. The Spirit is revealing truth and enabling people to receive the truth. And yet the Pharisees, who have every reason to believe that this is a work of the Spirit, are so against the person of Jesus that they flip the switch and say, no way, that's Satan. When Jesus is doing the miraculous and casting out demons, he's meeting the job description of the Messiah. Like, it's, use, it's, it's using their own definitions to say this, and, and you're still going to deny it. So it is a state where you are so in rebellion to God that even when you know that what you saw was God himself doing something, you still deny it. And you can say, well, who would ever, ever do that? Well, this is why it's so interesting because that actually is what Satan himself does. That is the work of the demonic, right? Satan knows God is real, knows the goodness of God. But rather than worship the one true God in a state of rebellion, rejects him and wants to take as many people down with him as possible. You know, see what I'm following? It's like, it's like this deep satanic sin to actually know God's goodness and to rebel against that which is true, good, and beautiful. Now, some important clarification. We don't even know if the Pharisees have committed this sin. We don't even know if it's possible. All we know is that there is a group of people who just attributed the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan and Jesus says, you better watch out. He didn't say they've crossed that line. He might be saying, you're this close, man. You're walking on thin ice. Do you know what you're doing? Your heart can become, and see this is where it overlaps with the other views. Your heart can become so evil that even if God showed up and gave you his good truth, you would still reject it because you're so stubbornly against him. And at that point, what else is there to do? Like what else can you do? And so it may just be that Jesus said, watch out, you're this close. Or maybe someone in the, the crowd had, had done that. We don't know, this is, this is one of those places in the Bible where it's like there's just four verses and you're totally wishing that, like the next verse says, later that evening, one of the disciples approached him and said, Lord, what you say is confusing and hard to understand. Um, and then Jesus began to explain all the things that he had said. But it doesn't do that. You just get very, very little, very little. And so those are the four major views. This, and then the, the kind of last thing I communicated was to the best of my ability, what I think is, is occurring right here, and it's not just something that I believe. Brilliant theologians throughout church history have said similar things. To get to a place where you know what is good and true and beautiful, and there's undeniable evidence, it's right there, and you would still rather attribute it to the work of Beelzebub, to Satan, than to acknowledge the work of the Spirit. Okay. Now some clarifying notes. Because there are some of you who go, thank God, there's no way I've done any of that stuff. Like, not even close. Like, I'm, I, I blow it all the time. I'm a sinner. I've never, I've never done this. I've never done, but I'm, you know, there's no way I ever did that. I ain't the, good. Okay, great. And then there's some of you who, 
who have a fragile conscience before God and you're always wrestling with, with guilt and shame and when you read a verse like that, you just immediately go, yep, I had to have done that. And, some, and I know this pastorally because it's something that people have worried about a lot. And so um, I remember even myself being in like high school wondering if like, have, have I said something on accident that crossed this line? You know, and you begin to, to, to worry. And then you go, yep, I had to have. That's why I don't feel the love of God. That's why I'm rejected. That's why I feel low. That's why this bad thing happened. I'm cut off and there's no way for redemption for it to happen. Now here's the thing. If you commit this unpardonable sin, this unforgivable sin, you have become so hard that you reject God to such a degree that when his goodness is revealed in front of you, you'd rather attribute that to Satan. If you commit that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you don't care that you committed it. You rejoice in your rebellion against God. If you've committed that, you're not stressed out or worried if you cross some magical line. So if you are stressed or burdened about God's potential judgment of you, it demonstrates that you at least have the fruit of fear of God, which with certainty tells you that you haven't committed this sin. You wouldn't be stressed out and worried about what God thinks about you if you had crossed this. This verse is in the scriptures not to terrify a fragile conscience before God. This verse is there to warn religious leaders who were intentionally misleading and attributing the work of God to Satan and hoping that others might not follow Jesus. And even that, we don't know if they cross that line. Jesus just says, you better watch out. So if you're worried and stressed if you've crossed this line, you're good. You're good. You're good. God is not up there in heaven waiting for you to cross some magical line so he can be like, they're gonna, gotcha. Now I never have to forgive that person because I never wanted to forgive that person in the first place, but I'm so merciful I have to unless they cross that line. (laughs) Now I'm telling you, that's what many of you, you know, you go through these things, maybe not exactly like that, but even forget this specific thing. You just do that with sin and shame in your life. And what does the God revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ look like? We don't even have to go far. Let's just look at the last couple chapters of the Gospel of Matthew of what we read. What is the heart of God like? Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is not the God who's up there trying to get you. That's the God who is saving you, who loves you, who bound up the tyrant and the strong man in order that he might be on a rescue mission for your good. He is for you, not against you. He's not waiting there trying to get you. He says, a bruised reed, speaking of Jesus, he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. He's not gonna blow out the candle. That's not the heart of God. And so, if you feel the weight of that, again, just... 
Your conscience is not seared to the point that you have committed that and the, that is demonstrated and given evidence by the fact of your worry and stress. This verse was not there to warn you. It was warned to, there to warn the Pharisees who were crossing a very, very sacred line. Okay, so that's, all, that's encouragement, okay? So we feel good, encouragement, okay, because it's about to turn, okay? Because in, in hyper-focusing on this, we can neglect something that comes up right before that actually probably should concern us more than that. It says this. Remember the image. How can someone enter a strong man's house and harpazo, plunder, or seize, or snatch those goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And this is the part that's easily missed. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Returning to that statement of you can't maintain forever neutrality with Jesus. Like you, you have to, to say I'm in or I'm out. There's a, a song by one of my favorite bands named Thrice. It's called Listen Through Me. And it says, the story is an, is an offense, so get down off that fence and either bless or curse. And it's this idea that you can't sit on the fence forever. The gospel is an offense to an unbelieving world. You could only sit on the fence so long, so get down and bless him and worship him as Lord or deny him. Bless him and worship or join the crowds on Good Friday. That's the way it works. Now, the intention is not to encourage you like, yeah, just bless or curse and whatever, I don't care, curse. It's, it's just saying this so-called position of neutrality doesn't exist forever. So again, if you're here and you're, you're exploring and you're diving into the teachings of Jesus, great, great. But the ultimate question for every human being is who do you say this guy is? Now, there's good news and bad news because culturally speaking, there's some bad news in that uh, as culture becomes increasingly hostile to Christianity, it's more difficult to sit on the fence. Uh, but the good news is that as culture becomes more hostile to Christianity, it becomes increasingly difficult to sit on the fence. Like, you, like it's forcing you to decide. Because there was a time and place, culturally speaking, where you could just, you could kick back on that fence all day long. You'd chill. Like you weren't forced to be in or out. Let me, let me explain what I mean. So let's go back to the 1950s. And let's say you just got a new job at a new place. New job, it's your first day, you come in. And it's like, oh, there's a new guy. How's it going, Bob? New guy, Bob, how's it going? He said, great, oh, talking at lunchtime, let's get to know each other. Uh, well, t- tell us about yourself, Bob. Well, I have this many kids, I lived in this area so long, um, love fishing, uh, I love um, being outdoors. We've been attending the uh, Presbyterian Church down the street for about 10 years. You know which one I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, the Presbyterian Church. Yeah, I've been there forever. And then someone else goes, yeah, I, I've never been to that church, but my wife and I have gone to the Methodist Church for 15 years there. We were raising our kids there. Someone else says, oh, yeah. You know, I've always loved that Methodist church. We used to go there, but then we started going to this Baptist church because, you know, we just, they had a youth group that was awesome. And we, our kids were plugging in and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Statistically speaking, everyone was identifying as Christians in that time period. And it didn't mean that everyone was a born-again Christian, that everyone feared God, everyone loved God. It just meant, culturally speaking, 
Like you would just say you're a Christian and then you would further describe that by what tribe you belong to. We're Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, and you would, you would just do this. And it was, here's the key, culturally advantageous for you to identify as Christian. If you were to go into that workplace and say, oh, I'm not a Christian. I think you guys are foolish. There is no God, clearly, by the evidence. That statement, that sort of like confident atheism in the 50s would not have been most likely culturally advantageous for you. You would have been looked at suspiciously. Flash forward to where we're at, you get a new job, Silicon Valley, in the tech world, you're there, and on the first day, some of you know, and it's not like everywhere, but depending upon the department, who your, your coworkers are, you could be in a place where you're like, uh, I'm not gonna mention this thing on day one. Why? Because it may not be, dependent upon your circumstances, culturally advantageous for you. It may not be culturally advantageous for you. Yeah, I'm that Christian guy, believing the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, thinking he's coming back, second coming to to judge the righteous and the wicked. He's bringing his recompense with him, so you all need to repent. (laughs) Like, that won't be culturally advantageous for you, most likely. There are tons of places where there's, there, there's Christians and, and places where it's not even Christian, it's just leftover cultural Christianity residue where it's not culturally disadvantageous. But just generally speaking, it's shifted. So, in our world now, it's sort of like, no, you kind of do have to decide. Are you gonna stand by your Christian beliefs? Or are you just kind of like, hmm, so you could sit on the fence and not get in any trouble. So it's different for everybody, different circumstances, but it is a different world than it was in the 1950s in our cultural climate. Okay, so that's the thing that you should be probably more worried about, is that if you're just in the business of trying to sit on the fence forever. But again, what happens is we hyper-focus on the super scary one that we miss this, this that's a powerful statement, Jesus says, If you're not with me, you're against me. Like, that should should cause some warnings to go off in our head. Like, am am I truly for him type of thing? Okay, so I gave you encouragement, said, oh, you're okay. Then some warning. And now we'll end with some nice Father's Day encouragement. Everyone could go away happy. All right, so... There's so much fear in a lot of this stuff. Fear that we hypothetically said some word haphazardly and now God won't forgive us. There's like a fear with that. And then there's a fear that's like, if I'm all in with my faith, how will my family respond? My coworkers respond? How will the world respond? And there's all these fears and stresses, anxieties and thoughts that, like, that creep up on us and you can become paralyzed. And it's like, oh man, this is, this is too much. But we have to remember the most important part of this text. There was a tyrant, the strong man, who held you captive, but the good shepherd Christ goes on a rescue mission. And how does he go on this rescue mission? He ties up the tyrant, binds the strong man, in order that he might harpazo you, plunder you, snatch you, seize you, take you from the hands of the enemy. And then an important question comes out of that. If you've been rescued 
from the hands of the enemy, where are you at now? Who do you belong to? Who controls your destiny? Who gives you security? If you've been removed from the hands of the tyrant, whose hands are you in today? The words of Jesus, our Lord. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will harpazo, snatch, plunder them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to harpazo, steal, snatch, take them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You've been taken from the tyrant and put in the hands of the good shepherd. And who can take you from his hand? No one. No one can bind the Father. No one is stronger than the Father. You're his and you are in his hand. So Jesus is the one who goes on the rescue mission. He ties up the tyrant, binds the strong man. He harpazo you and puts you in the good hands of our heavenly father. And now no one will be able to snatch or harpazo you out of that. You belong to Christ. Your security is in Christ. Christ controls your destiny. Nothing in heaven or hell can remove you from that in Christ. God is for you, not against you. What can separate you from the love of God? Nothing. Hear me, for those who wrestle with things, what can separate you from the love of God? Nothing. Height, depth, things present, things to come, angels, principalities, nothing from the love of God in Christ Jesus, for he is the one who tied up the tyrant and delivered you into the good father's hands. And because of that, you can be bold in this world in whatever circumstance you may face. Because whatever this world may throw at you, whether it's good or bad, you're here. You're here. You're safe, you're secure. And no matter what happens to you, Christ has resolved the biggest problems. How did he do this? by his life, living the perfect life so that the accuser had no accusation, the tyrant could not condemn, by his death where he paid the penalty of sin, and by his resurrection where he defeats death so that even if you were to drop dead today, death will not have the last word. So as we go to communion, we go with boldness, knowing we've been delivered we are safe and secure in the hands of our good heavenly Father who is for us, not against us. Please stand. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. You were bought with precious blood. We take communion every day so that if we forget this truth, forget our worth, forget God's ultimate truth, we remember Christ died for us. Not to condemn us, but to save us. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup. It's the blood of the new covenant. And as we take this, we say, Lord, we want to be faithful just as you've been faithful to us. And so the same way we prayed for all the fathers in the room that we would be faithful until the end, 
we now declare corporately and individually, Lord, help us to remain faithful until the very end. And Father, we now close in, in a song of worship and gratitude and thankfulness. Lord, we come to you knowing that you are for us, not against you. You are for us and not against us. Comfort those who have heavy conscience, fragile conscience. Minister to them by your spirit. For others, inspire us to be bold and faithful, knowing that we cannot sit on the fence forever. We thank you that no matter how great our sins have been, no matter how in the hands of the enemy we were, you have forgiven us, saved us, and delivered us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.